Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Whoa, what the... Is there a door behind all those spiders? (laughs) It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. (sighs) Look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax. You booked a Verbo. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. So I am a little self-conscious about how much I talk about my recovery on this show. I am self-conscious in part because 12-step programs have kind of conflicting traditions about being out. And so I'm always thinking about that. And I'm self-conscious because I do get some feedback that my recovery is not really relevant to the show, which, you know, it's my show, but it's your show too. So, okay. So in general... I try to keep the recovery talk to a minimum, except when it seems really relevant. But it's relevant a lot of the time for me. It's relevant because the paradigm of recovery, of relinquishing a crutch that has become a weapon, is a great paradigm for understanding one's place as an abuser of power, whether that's the power of whiteness or patriarchy or ableism. And in case you haven't noticed, abuse of power is a major theme for this show. The show takes its name from a phrase with friends like these who needs enemies that is essentially a tiny parable about the abuse of power. The saying the show takes its name from with friends like these who needs enemies is essentially a tiny parable about the abuse of power. And the way that I see it I am an abuser of whiteness in the same way I'm a drug addict. I didn't choose to be an addict. I'm not a bad person because I'm an addict. But once I realized my addiction was harmful to myself and others, I became responsible for the damage done. And I became responsible for taking steps to keep me from acting on my addiction. But I will also never stop being an addict. There won't come a time when the easy answers that I get from drugs will stop being appealing to me. I have to actively create alternative behaviors for myself, and I have to watch out for falling into behaviors that, should they continue, will lead me to using. I also didn't choose to reap the benefits of whiteness. I am also not a bad person because I received those benefits. But now that I know the damage that systemic oppression has done and does, I am responsible for taking steps to undo that damage, and I am responsible for how I use my own whiteness. And I will never stop being white. I will never stop being tempted by the easy answers that whiteness offers me. I have to actively create alternative behaviors. And here's the confession part of the introduction. I actually wrote up this introduction and chose to use the words white and whiteness in the metaphor because 
honestly, I was worried that if I used the word I was actually thinking of, you in the audience would get turned off. And also it would be uncomfortable for me. The word I wanted to use to describe the abuse of whiteness is white supremacy. I think that is a more accurate phrase. And I will now do an experiment to see if my instinct was correct. You in the audience pay attention and I pay attention too. You in the audience, here we go. I'm also paying attention to my feelings now. I did not choose to reap the benefits of white supremacy. Yeah, that sucked. That that sucked for me. That felt horrible. Um, although it's 100% true. I have me, personally, Anna Marie Cox. I have reaped the benefits of white supremacy as a system. A system that includes the marchers in Charlottesville, but also the everyday racism that costs black people their lives. And though saying white supremacy saying I benefited from white supremacy, that sucked for me. It may not have sucked for you. Because among other things, you may not be white. But I didn't think of the people of color in the audience, at least not at first, when I I wrote this up. And this whole thing that just happened, where I hesitated to use the word I wanted to use, where I worried about the feelings of my audience and my own feelings, and where I assumed that my audience looked like me, that is white fragility in action. If you have heard that phrase before, which we will get into uh, in great detail, (laughs) but if you have heard that phrase before, it's because of this week's guest, Robin D'Angelo. Robin is an academic lecturer and author. She's been a consultant and trainer on issues of racial and social justice for more than 20 years. And she's also the author of the book that we will be discussing, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I think right off the bat, the thing we need to do is define white fragility. I believe you coined the term uh, not too long ago. Well, it feels like maybe it was an age ago, uh, a, a century ago in 2011. Um, is there a way to tell us briefly what you mean by white fragility? Yes. And I think the fact that it's fairly ubiquitous now in the culture, right, uh, says that it captures something that is recognizable. Right. One of the things that can trigger white fragility is generalizing about white people. And yet, I think there's a reason the term caught on. So it is meant to capture the defensiveness that is so predictable uh, whenever white people's worldviews, identities, uh, racial positions or advantages are questioned. And that includes generalizing about white people. That includes proceeding as if being white had meaning. Uh, so the fragility part is meant to capture how that ups- how upset that makes us. And yet the impact is not fragile at all. It's actually an incredibly effective means at maintaining our positions. I think white fragility functions as a kind of everyday white racial control. Uh, and to put it more bluntly, everyday white racial bullying because we white people make it so often so miserable for people of color to talk to us about our inevitable racist patterns and perspectives by virtue of being raised in a culture in which racism is the bedrock, 
we make it so miserable, they risk even more punishment from us. So most of the time, they don't bother. They just endure it rather than unsettle or upset us. So it may be born uh, from anxiety, but it is definitely functions to maintain uh, white dominance. And I actually want to add, this is a good, maybe teachable moment right here, which is that you did use us and we and our in talking about yes. white people. And that's because you're a white person. Yes. And, and I'm a white person. But so often, white people just make the assumption that whiteness is default. That's one yes. of the ways that whiteness works in our culture is that unless we say otherwise, yes. we assume the person that we're referring to is white. Right. And so when we name whiteness, right, that simple fact unsettles us. Uh, we kind of come to feel entitled, conscious or not, to being that default, right, the definition of human and everyone else a particular variation of human and, and a deficient one at that. For me, that's the definition of white supremacy, white as the ideal, the human norm uh, from which we proceed. Uh, so we're not used to having that named and and being responded to as if it had any kind of meaning, and that will set off the fragility. I had a, a friend who's disabled once point out to me how uh, you know how monumental it would be if journalists, for instance, referred to people's ability every time they were talking about yeah. a new person, yeah. <laughs> like so-and-so who walks on two legs <laughs> or so-and-so who, who, who can see. Um, yeah, that word monumental. I, I, there's an example I use in the book of once asking a group of people, it was a very multiracial group, and I asked the people of color, what would it be like if you could just give us feedback uh, when we inevitably, you know, reveal our, our racism um, and we receive that feedback with grace, reflected on it and sought to change our behavior? Like, what would that be like? And I'll never forget this man of color raising his hand and saying it would be revolutionary. Now I'm just like, damn, I mean, that's how difficult we are, that that's a revolution, right, that we would just receive it, reflect with grace and and seek to change. I just think it shows how difficult we are, but also how simple it is. And yet we can't get there from the current paradigm. And to imagine, so my friend who's disabled talking about her her yeah. visibility in this case, like for her, what it would mean if we just didn't always assume people had yes. all the abilities that they have, See, that yes. decentering of that, what that would mean when you think about it, it would mean a lot because it's so damaging to not have it. Yeah, because that assumption is not benign. Right. You know, we, those of us who can make that assumption, assume it's benign. And yet we proceed from it. Therefore, we're going to set up everything we do to reflect, you know, um, the assumption of a certain kind of body. Yeah. And it will automatically exclude people whose bodies don't work in those ways. Yeah. And that's why I guess that, that's what I'm trying to point out. When he says it's revolutionary, my other friend says it's monumental. What we yeah. also need to see is just how bad it is when we don't do that. Yeah, you know? I know. I, I think... I often say one of the most brilliant adaptations, um, certainly of racism, that is one form of oppression, and, and your friend is talking about ableism, which is another form, and of course you can't talk about ableism without also talking about how race shapes it. Yeah. Um, hold on, I lost my thought for a second. Um, well, post-civil rights, the definition of racism 
adapted into an incredibly simplistic formula, right? It's always an individual, never a system. Uh, it must be intentional um, and it must be conscious and aware. So in other words, an individual consciously does not like people based on race and intentionally seeks to be mean to them. And by that definition, virtually all white people are exempt from the system we're actually living and operating in. And I think it's the root of virtually all white defensiveness, because if you suggest I've done anything racist or in the case of your friend ableist, you've just suggested that I intentionally and consciously sought to hurt you. And so now I'm going to have to defend my my what I see as my moral character. And it just it just set it up so beautifully to protect systems of oppression for those of us who would profess to be against systems of oppression. Yeah. And in fact, you. You point this out several times in the book, but I think my listeners especially might might find it hard to believe, <laughs> which is that it's progressives that really kind of are the worst offenders here when it comes to right. Yeah, I think if we understand the, you know, there are extreme cases of violence and brutality. There are police executions. You know, there are people calling police and risking people's lives. There are people marching in Charlottesville. They, those are real and they exist and they create a constant state of terror for people of color in this country. Um, but maybe every day you don't interact with somebody that would do those things, but you interact with me every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I am the one who is perpetrating things that slights and indignities that you have to endure lest you risk more punishment, right? Uh, One of the greatest challenges for those of us who are white progressives or well-meaning white people um, is that we just think that's all it takes and our learning is finished and we're good to go. And so it's it's never us, right? The number one question I'm going to get from a white progressive is how do I tell so-and-so about their racism? (laughs) And my response is always, well, how would I tell you about yours? You know, that question presumes that it isn't me. Um, and so we're going to put all our energy, if the topic even comes up, uh, on making sure you know that, you know, I'm the choir, uh, in ways that, of course, won't be convincing to you at all, um, but I think are. And um, I'm not going to put any of my energy into what I need to be doing for the rest of my life, which is deep, ongoing, uh, critical awareness, uh, education, mistake-making, risk-taking, relationship-building, and ultimately, actual strategic, intentional, anti-racist action. We white progressives can be incredibly arrogant and complacent. You give a ton of real-world examples in the book that I think are really helpful to a reader that might be wondering, you know, what is this about and how does it affect me? Is Can, I, can it really be about me? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorites, or the one that hit home, one of the those that hit home the hardest was the one about you doing a workshop about whiteness and a white woman who worked with Native people, like coming up to one of your colleagues oh. and berating her mm-hmm. about, about having not included Native peoples. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yo, you want me to say something yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah, please tell tell that anecdote because I, I feel like it's a really, really good example of that well meaning white person. Yeah, so I had just given a, a talk on white fragility and whiteness and kind of what I call seeing the water, how all white people are socialized uh, and 
complicit. You know, the default is racism. So you, if you're not actively challenging it, and by the way, niceness is not actively challenging uh, racism, um, you're colluding with it. I've just given this talk. And a white woman came up and just start. I heard this yelling. She was yelling at, um, I don't even think this woman of color had organized the session, but she certainly hadn't just given the talk. I had. And she just was yelling at her for leaving out uh, Native Americans. And I had to go over there. I mean, I could hear her across the room. And, you know, I, I explained where I was coming from and why I made the choices I made in the talk. You know, but you can't help but wonder, and so how did that function for her, right? So she got to be the outraged advocate for Native Americans, but never once uh, engaged with how her whiteness was manifesting in that exchange. And what was it like for that woman of color who hadn't even given the talk to be yelled at like that by a white woman? You know, where in there was that white woman holding her positionality? I would say that she wasn't, and what she was doing was, you know, being the the outraged protector and savior of people of color, uh, and in that actually harming a person of color. I am going to say, white women come up a lot in your book. A lot of white women see themselves as exempt from uh, racial privilege because we experience sexism. Um, And what I have learned in my work with people of color is we do not land any more lightly on them. In fact, when we don't back people of color, the betrayal and the hurt is greater because we do have that potential way in. Um, I, I work with a woman, a black woman named Erin Trent Johnson, and she says when she walks into a room full of white women, it's way more dangerous uh, atmosphere for her than a room full of white men. And she'll say, you know, the white men I don't have expectations for. Ooh, but the white women, you know, they're, they're more likely to be passive aggressive. I'm generalizing here, but that's more likely to happen. If, if they feel threatened in any way by me, if I try to push back on one of them and they burst into tears, all the other white women are going to rally around them. I'm going to be the aggressor. White women are treacherous. Uh, for for many people of color. So we really have to use our understanding of sexism, again, as a way in and not as a way out. And and so I like to push on this. Anything that I, that white people think exempts us, you know, I, I want to challenge because nothing exempts us. I think that's a really important point because I do think that especially, you know, the, the big moment in response to Trump was the women's march, right? But that also immediately became problematized in a way that I think for a lot, I think it's safe to say a lot of white women did not understand some of the resistance that was met, um, that they met. I shouldn't say using passive voice here. (laughs) White women were uh, pushed back upon by women of color who very rightly pointed out most white women voted for Donald Trump, that this is not. A, a case where we can just assume a solidarity across, you know, gender, that there is a reason why there's distrust at this particular historical moment. Right. And and they can't necessarily distinguish us. But on that point, I did not vote for Donald Trump, but that doesn't mean I don't cause harm to the people of color in my life. Right. Um, 
I think white women have assumed, let's, let, let's, let's talk to the white women that are most likely to be listening to your podcast, and I, I'm going to assume they are not <laughs> Trump supporters. I don't right. know. But right, right. Is that a safe assumption that right. probably they're not? Okay. So I always want to watch for anything that exempts me. Um, and so if we're going to talk about white women who voted for Trump, then I'm going to, I'm going to be exempted from that. Um, however, uh, I think white women who didn't vote for Trump, uh, we have an assumption of of some kind of shared sisterhood, some kind of shared woman's experience. And there's not, uh, I I can remember doing a workshop. uh, I was with all white women at their tables. They had to come up with something. I can't remember the question. But this one group reported out, well, motherhood is the shared experience. And I was kind of like flabbergasted, like, oh my goodness, motherhood is so not a shared mm-hmm. experience under white supremacy. I, I don't even feel like I, I probably have to explain that, right? But the mother of a black son is not operating in the same uh, sense of sisterhood that a mother of a white son is. Or right? just look at maternal mortality rates. I mean, thank you. Literally, it's not. It's one of them is survivable in a greater, much greater extent, and the other one of them survives to be a mother more often. Exactly, and you know, um, upwards of fifty plus percent of medical residents who were surveyed believe black people feel less pain. So imagine what the birth experience is going to be like. Um, There are. uh, I know someone who is the director of a YMCA. And black children drown more often because lifeguards think they're just being unruly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it can just go on and on and on. The power of implicit bias and how that does not make for a universal shared experience. So I think that's the, the shock that white progressive women might feel um, when there's distrust from women of color. And I guess I want to reframe sort of the, what the happened, what I thought happened at the Women's March, which is not so much that um, p- women of color were saying you voted for Trump and the white women were like, oh, no, I didn't. It was that it was actually I think that the women at the Women's March were exempting themselves. Yes. Saying, no, we're the good ones. We're here. <laughs> and the women of color that were there were say, making the more general point that, like, this is not an easy allyship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you ever had like, a man say, say to you, "I'm a feminist"? Oh, of course. <laughs> my, have my. You ever, my... <laughs> thought your, you ever thought yourself? Yeah, I, don't I won't get so. too personal about it, but yeah, I've had yeah, some, you know, very not I... feminist men. Where I shouldn't say very not feminist. Who knows if they're feminist or not? I've had have had men who treat women really badly. Right, claim well, to be a feminist. You know what? What I say to a man who tells me I'm a feminist is just, "Well, I will be the judge of that." Yes, right. <laughs> I will be the judge of whether you're behaving in what I determine are feminist ways in any given moment. And this is why I don't call myself an ally. I don't call myself an anti-racist white. I say that I'm involved in anti-racist work. But the reason I don't call myself those things are that it's really for people of color to decide if in any given moment... I am behaving in anti-racist ways. And that reminds me of a couple of key points, right? Humility. I'm the least qualified to make that determination. I'm the most invested in not seeing um, my patterns. And I need to be accountable, right? I mean, just when, when white people are just so sure they're not racist, I just want to ask them, how do you know? How do you know? <laughs> 
Who's in your life? Who are you talking to? What kind of feedback are you getting? What are you struggling with? And and I would assume not much. <laughs> right? Yes. I mean, white people live overwhelmingly white lives. Yep. And yet we feel qualified to determine that we're free of racism. Yeah. We're, we're a... Even though most of us don't deal with people of color much. I mean, just it's a statistical fact that Say we that live... Again? I, I said, we feel like we, we're safe in saying that we're anti-racist or not racist um, or an ally when the fact is, just statistically speaking, we live in a fairly segregated society. And so yes. how could you know that you're not racist? Right. And even if you don't. OK, so I am partnered with a man. Um, are, are you? Yes. OK. So the day that he fell in love with you, did all his sexism vanish? <laughs> <laughs> I bet you didn't. I bet you fight over it. You know, right? He, he loves you. He's mm. now free of all patriarchal conditions. Come on. And yet, notice the moment there's fond regard across race. Yeah. You know, if I can smile at my coworker who's black, I am now free of all racism, right? Mm. It, we, we're so funny when it comes to race, right? We would be very clear that to be assigned male or female upon birth will profoundly shape the trajectory of our socialization, mm -hmm. you know? And we're going to be unique individuals, but there are collective messages we're all getting. We can't go to the McDonald's and order a Happy Meal without getting the same message of what it means to be a boy or a girl. We know this, and yet when it comes to race, nope, nothing happening. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. I'm going to choose to take a break on that because I want to come back and talk about how we can see what's happening rather than simply moving on. So we'll be right back. Here's a, a not-so-fun fact although a different kind of not-so-fun fact than we usually talk about on this show. One in every three of the women listening right now is wasting time and money on multivitamins full of ingredients that your body cannot actually use. Why? Because traditional vitamins contain folic acid, which is a synthetic nutrient that at least one-third of all women can't process, thanks to a very common genetic variation. In fact, it would be one-third of women genetic variation. And those of us with this variation have no idea that we have it. Although, actually, technically, I do know because I had to get it tested. But you probably don't know. And the only vitamin that solves for that is Ritual. They use folate, which all women can process because they actually care about ingredient forms. They make a vitamin that works for all women, not just some. I have been using Ritual, and I'm not going to make any kind of wild claims about day and night differences. You'll have to listen to conservative uh, shows to get, you know, people talking about beets and stuff. But I will tell you that I've seen a difference in my hair and nails. And um, my hair especially um, seems, my my hairdresser said that um, the, the baby hairs around my head, you know, hairline seem to be uh, stronger. And also I notice that my nails are standing up better to the typing that I do all the time. So ritual is vegan, sugar-free, gluten-free, allergen-free, and made in the USA without synthetic fillers or colorants. Their subscription service makes it easy to fill the gaps in your diet with the best source ingredients on a regular basis. For just $30 a month, you get Ritual delivered right to your door. Now, and if you miss a few days of it, you can snooze your subscription until you have used up all that you have. Ritual guarantees your happiness, which is, it says in the copy, they probably mean happiness with the product. I, 
I wish someone could guarantee happiness in general. But Ritual guarantees happiness with product, and you can cancel any time, no question asked. Again, 95% of women do not get the vitamins and minerals they need on a daily basis. Ritual created a smarter vitamin with the nine essential ingredients women lack the most. Go to ritual.com slash friends, choose clean ingredients backed by science. Sign up now at ritual.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So we were talking about the fact that, you know, one's racism doesn't disappear the instant one has a black friend um, or the instant one, say, votes for Obama, perhaps. Uh, how you you do uh, I don't what do you what kind of training you are a trainer on issues around race? Yeah, I do what you might call racial justice workshops. I mean, the terms have changed over time. Diversity cultural competency, which I, which I hate. Um, <laughs> I, I just say racial equity or racial justice okay. workshops. I, I like that a lot better than sensitivity training for sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, which was about almost what I called it, but I'm, I'm glad we got away from that. Uh, <laughs> if only to then say that's a bad thing to call it. Um, what I, I imagine that must be very difficult. And part of me just wants to you to like talk to me about the challenges you face there. But I guess for the benefit of our audience, maybe if you are trying to get a well-meaning white person to see themselves as white and the benefits that's given to them, what is the most helpful path to go down? Oh, let me just think for a second. It's maybe a parallel process, right? So, oh, all you need to do is try to talk about racism with other white people. And as soon as I say that, many of your listeners are going to go, oh, God, no, right? (laughs) So there's a reason. Um, And it's worth grappling with those reasons that we uh, resist doing that and with our um, fear of the conflict that would result. That's an incredible way not only to build your, your skills and your capacity, but to begin to see how white people construct race. So for me, talking day in and day out with white people about what it means to be white, just, I mean, 
I can articulate what I can because it's so predictable and so patterned. So breaking with white solidarity is one step. And white solidarity is the unspoken agreement amongst white people that will keep each other comfortable around our racism and not challenge each other. Um, and, you know, not naming race or suggesting uh, that being white has meaning or and the workplace not pointing out that everybody making the decision that's going to affect far more people than are at the table, uh, everybody at that table is white. Those kinds of moves uh, are incredibly important. And of course, we must be in relationship with people of color. We must be talking about racism with them. We must be getting feedback. We must be listening and believing. Uh, we need to get out of our comfort zones, right? And put ourselves in situations uh, where that will happen. And it might not happen in our neighborhoods or our schools or our workplaces, but there's lots going on out there in the community uh, that we can get involved in. We need to read everything we can, watch videos, watch movies. It just constantly be educating ourselves. So you, so you notice that some of that is intellectual, some of it is interpersonal, some of it is kind of self-reflective. Um, it, it's a process that is multidimensional and we need to be continually engaged on and not see ourselves as ever finished. I will never be free of my conditioning. And every moment that I push against it, it is coming right back at me. The forces not to talk about this are powerful and seductive. Um, I'm really clear after 20 years of this that I'm not free of racism. I'm also really clear that I do less harm. I'm not defensive when I do step in it. And I have really good repair skills. And those aren't small things because they build trust. Um, and it's been the most transformative, fantastic journey I could ever be on. It's just, it moves you way past shame and guilt, which only function to excuse our inaction. So I am not playing too much of a role here when I hear you describe that. And I think, oh, my God, that sounds hard. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely. I, I want to actually sort of ask this from from a, from a position of, again, sort of like the, the very basic girl, the very the very well-meaning white woman. So I want to do better. Right. I want to do better. I have written some letters. I, I voted for Hillary Clinton. I've donated some money. What you're telling me, what I hear, the first thing I hear that may be something I can take action on in, in what you're talking about is the next time I'm in a group of white people and someone says something that I might in this moment in my life call vaguely racist or as we say in the news sometimes racially coded, <laughs> mm -hmm. what I should do is, is say, hey, wait a minute. And see if I can get my fellow white people to talk about it. Or, it's hey, can you say more? Um, or you could do this experiment that whenever you mention a person that's white, you name their race. Mm. Try it for a week. And if it's unbearable to you, um, a lot of people, white people have reported that it's unbearable. Uh, good. I mean, grapple with that right? Why is it unbearable? And what can that show you about yourself? And, and the reason I kind of moving us to that is it's really easy to think about it in terms of how do I speak up when another white person mm -hmm. says something yeah. from my perspective as vaguely racist. 
right? We don't assume it's going to be me right. um, doing it. Uh, so we need to put ourselves in situations where people who have a, a good awareness and analysis will uh, call us in, you know, will be the ones that are being called in. Or we take the initiative by bringing up race, uh, even when it doesn't appear to be at play, or naming white, those those kinds of moves, or, or talking about a podcast we listened to or a movie that we saw, right? So all of the things you named earlier, writing the letters, I mean, that's important too. Yeah. I mean, that has to happen. This is like kind of a multi-multi-dimension that this is operating on, and, and so taking it on from all of those is important, but I think one thing that white people can do is look at themselves in the mirror and be honest that they don't care. Mm. I, I, after 20 years of talking to white people day in and day out, I, I do not believe most white people care about racism. I think we're apathetic. If you show me an image of Rodney King being beaten, I will feel upset, but ask me to do anything different than smile and be friendly and be nice, I'm not going to do it. We, we don't care. And so look at yourself in the mirror and get in touch with it. And if you can live with that, well, at least live with honesty. But I can't live with that, right? Um, and so I have to, have to, have to push through all my fear and all my anxiety. And I'm not going to get it right. But all of that is what builds my capacity and my skills. And that those are antidotes to white fragility. I think one of the most powerful examples you give in the book is when you note that we never talk about the cost of de facto segregation. We never talk about to white people. Mm-hmm. We never assume that a white person raised in predominantly white environments is missing something. Yeah, I think that's the level in which I, I as a well-intended white progressive, like really got it the depth of the message of white supremacy that it's the absence of black and brown people that defines my neighborhood as good it's yeah. the absence of black and brown children that define that school as good we we know that come on i mean we don't even have to go to the school if there's a significant number of black and brown children significant from our perspective could be 25 percent um it, it will be a bad school in our minds right um so just the power of defining white segregation as good. Mm-hmm. What a message that is. That, that, that just nothing of value has been lost in my life by not having cross-racial relationships that are authentic. And from there proceeds really not thinking the perspectives or experiences of people of color matter. And so when I'm challenged with those perspectives and experiences, I'm not even going to be able to understand them, much less validate and affirm that they are important. White space is teeming with race, but white people see white space as racially inactive. They, They will talk about growing up in white environment as what sheltered them from race. They will say that that I'm racially innocent because I was raised in white segregation. I just wish we understood. Oh, no, you're not. I feel right, like that, that is yeah. a function. That is a function of racism. It's not an accident. It's not a fluke. And every minute you spend in white environments, you're being reinforced, not just in a white worldview, but in a sense that nothing's missing that matters. You do a good job uh, in the book 
in questioning when we say we grow up sheltered, what are we sheltered from? Like mm-hmm. the in- implicit message that the, there is danger outside the communities that are quote unquote sheltered. Um, and then I also think that you do a parallel kind of uh, analysis about how we valorize the token people of color as having made it. Like it's yeah. it, it, like you turn around the story of Jackie Robinson in a way that I think would probably, I'm going to say that I, I think I'm, I've been doing this for long enough that I wasn't, my mind wasn't blown <laughs> like completely <laughs> when you put it this way. But I think it was a really smart reframing, which is to say it's not that Jackie Robinson was such an amazingly talented, you know, uh, baseball player that he earned the right to participate in a white league. It's that he's the first black person that white people allowed to play. Yeah, it wasn't up to him. I, I mean, that, that I find it endlessly fascinating to think critically uh, about these narratives. So, so my field of study is actually discourse analysis, right? The study of language and how language constructs meaning. Um, and that, you know, words don't just describe some some reality. They're not neutral, right? That the words we have shape how we see that thing. Um, and so, yeah, behooves us to really think about, you know, for example, um, this idea that being, okay, let me, let me just stop. Ah, I'm, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Although I, re- I think, like I said, I think it's a really important, important point. And we, we also do that same thing to Obama, right? We, meaning I should actually be explicit here, white people, that Obama was the exceptional, amazing, and not to take away from either Jackie Robinson or Obama, by the way, not to take away from them at all. But it does two things. One, the subtext is the rest of them are not. Right. Um, And, you know, finally one was good enough to compete at our level. Um, And also it suggests that racism ended whenever those barriers were crossed. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we can see neither in sports nor in politics have racism ended because, you know, Jackie Robinson and Obama managed to be allowed in. So we kind of went over the, the the baby steps of of perhaps moving further into uh, your m- moving along the spec. I don't I don't know how to put it anymore. I sometimes you know use the word woke because that we have that word now. But um, let's say we talked about the baby steps you can take in moving along your own enlightenment around race. I don't know. Right, that's, coming that's, to the, consciousness. Coming to consciousness. Right, which is the process. Right. Okay, so go ahead. I want to talk about the next sort of steps one might take, which is that, so I've I've been raising my consciousness. I have been uh, trying to be active in my observance of white supremacy, and I realize I have done something. uh, Now, how would I frame it? I've done something racist? That doesn't seem like the right way to say it because we live in a racist society, so... Um, I've done something that's specifically offensive to someone. Is that how would you want to? No, I probably. I mean, if, okay, between you and me, I'd say I perpetrated racism. <laughs> okay, perpetrated racism. Um, but if I'm trying to be really diplomatic, I might say I stepped on somebody's toes okay, racially. Right. <laughs> okay, let's. let's however, right? it is. I, I realize I've I've, I've fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> That's also really. Yeah, I ran some racism at somebody. I revealed uh, some um, right. assumptions that I have been making. Right. Uh, right. Right. Um, what do I do? Well, the first thing I want to do 
ideally is be in in pretty good shape so that I myself realize I've done that right and it's not up to somebody else to give me that feedback and sometimes I, I can be proactive and realize oh my god I, I've just rethought what I said and I'm realizing such and such and other times as in the example I use in the book somebody brought it to my attention right so um there's a series of steps that I go through that I map out in that last chapter. You know, I mean, there's lots of things that the context, will I ever see them again? What's the relationship? Um, the main thing is, is really to work on my defensiveness. And I think it's perfectly fine to take a break if you're feeling defensive. In other words, if you were, if you were feeling defensive right now and I said, don't feel defensive, that's not going <laughs> to make you in no way, right? Right. So sometimes I just say, well, um, thank you for the feedback. I'm feeling a little flooded right now. I want to think about this. I want to get clear about it and, and, and I will return, but I, I just, I just need to sit with this. And then I go, you know, go away. And then I call somebody who I trust, um, loves me, but also has a very good analysis and won't you know, minimize the feedback or, you know, oh, they're just overreacting. You know, there's a million white people who will tell you that the person was overreacting. I, I'm not going to go to those people. Um, and then I, I work through my feelings with them so that I'm not running that inadvertently at the person, right? Um, if I'm feeling, let's face it, I, yeah, of course I'm going to feel uh, uh, guilty and um, want to be forgiven and want to be reassured that, you know, you still love me, but that's not fair, right? That's not a fair burden to put on somebody who you've just hurt. So I try to go somewhere else and work through those feelings so that I can come back and, and be, um, not defensive. Uh, I can let go of my intentions. I am actually at a place where I don't even mention my intentions anymore. I, I don't think they're really relevant, quite honestly. Um, go ahead and assume they were good. They may not have been. It, for me, again, it, that's not relevant. What's relevant is the impact of my actions. So I don't come back and say, if you were offended, or <laughs> if you thought that was racist, or some people, it's just like, what I did was racist. I'm sorry. And here's how I understand that it was. And I, I do my best to really lay that out. I mean, it, saying you're sorry is better than nothing, but it, it just goes so much further if you can, you know, show the person that you understand, that you learned something from the risk they just took. Because what they really just did was risk the relationship. Because yeah. that's usually what happens, right? Yeah. Is we withdraw and start to avoid and punish those people. Right. So um, I own it. I talk it through. I commit to try to do better. I ask if there's anything else that needs to be said or heard. And can we move on? Yep. And we move on. If you have a defined personal style, and maybe even more if you don't, you know how easy it is to fall into a rut and wear the same thing every day. And the problem is when the temperature changes, when the season change, um, it can kind of catch you flat-footed or in flats, as the case may be. Um, especially this time of year when it still can be really hot, but also fall is coming. Um, the temperature swings can be pretty wild. I know here um, in the Midwest, it can people like it cold in the AC world of, of, of the Midwest inside. I mean, I mean, they also must like the weather to be cold. I'm just saying there's like wide swings in temperature between the outside and inside. Anyway, Stitch Fix can help. 
They can help you style for every season and every occasion. And they can do things like I have gotten some great kind of like lightweight wraps, which help solve the inside to outside and outside to inside problem. Um, but they they can do anything for you. Just tell Stitch Fix your sizes, some information about your lifestyle and your preferred budget. And one of their stylists will send you clothes, shoes and accessories picked out just for you. You don't even have to leave the house and you know how much I hate leaving the house. Each Stitch Fix box contains five items you can try on at home and you only pay for the items you keep. Making returns is easy. I've actually had experience with this. I I kept something from the box and then discovered I had a thing almost exactly like it. So I had to make a return and they made it super easy. They cover cost of shipping both ways for returns and exchanges too, like I just said. And as always, there's no subscription required. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or just whenever you want. Get your first fix now with stitchfix.com slash friends and get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends to get started with Stitch Fix today. Stitchfix.com slash friends. If you listen to this show on a regular basis, you have heard me talk about Framebridge. Let's see what I've talked about. I've talked about the Obama uh, wedding congratulations that we got framed. I have talked about the Instagram photos I shared with a friend. And also I got my Sports Illustrated story framed and I'm uh uh hi dad happy birthday early birthday (laughs) um it looks really cool framebridge is great they can frame all kinds of things uh and they can uh definitely make it easy to to frame any digital photos you have just go to framebridge.com and upload the photo if it is a non-digital thing that you have uh, they will send you packaging to safely mail it in You can preview your item online in any frame style, and you can choose your favorite or get free recommendations from their talented designers. The expert team at Framebridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece to your door, ready to hang. And instead of paying the hundreds you would pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39. All shipping is free. Plus, my listeners get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use my code FRIENDS. Get started today. Frame your photos or send the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, and special events. I actually really do love this idea. If you have taken like an Instagram photo at a cool event, whether it's a birthday or just a get together, it's super easy to just get it framed and send to somebody. And it's so much nicer than just sharing a virtual album. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code FRIENDS. You'll save an additional 15% off your first order. Framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. Again, that is Framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. So I've mentioned this every once in a while, and I feel self-conscious about it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I'm in recovery. That's not the thing I'm self-conscious about. (laughs) Uh, What I find interesting, and I worry I pointed out too much, is that I find a lot of parallels between white supremacy and addiction. Yeah. And one, I I get a lot out of framing... Um, my place in white supremacy is a kind of addiction mm-hmm. and something I need to be free of and steps I need to take. And one of the ways that the parallel be- gets strongest for me is what you just described in terms of like how to deal with an, an act of racism on my part is really similar to one, when one makes amends in the 12 steps. And the first thing you do is you you own, yeah. Right? You take responsibility for your behavior, and then you make amends. Well, there's actually another part of it that's really parallel, which is so first you 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 make a list of those you've harmed. Yep. And it's very clear in the twelve steps that you do that without doing anything else. 
yet. <laughs> you just you get clear on who you've harmed and then you go over it with someone, not the people you've harmed. Yeah. But some third party so that you can get clarity from that person about do you am I understand, you know, am I misreading this? Am I you know, am I making too much or too little? Uh, and do you think that I've covered everything? And then also you get emotionally prepared to go make that amend because it's really important in this framework, in the 12-step framework, to not put the burden of forgiveness on the person that you're making the amend to. Yeah, and I, and I think there's – correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I have a sister in recovery, so I have been to uh, Al-Anon meetings and that type of thing. Um, the, the number one step is humility, right? Humility. Well, that's a part <laughs> of the go, whole, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Go control, right? Maybe that that parallels with just start from the presumption that you have been thoroughly conditioned to participate in uh, white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty liberating yeah. uh, assumption to make. And then from that proceed certain kinds of actions. And I would imagine that uh, as an addict, you may not know Everyone. Those are the yeah. people you're aware of. Right. You know, and there's people you've hurt you don't even know. Right. Um, so, and I, I also imagine that when you're going over that list, trying to repair it may not always be the most strategic thing to do. That right? is correct. It, it's not a given like you must now go. I mean, anytime you have a rigid um, formula or, you know, the, you default to, I will always speak up or I will never speak up or I will, you know, go talk to everybody I think I've harmed. You're not thinking um, strategically, right? Um, I wrote an article called Nothing to Add, The Role of White Silence in Cross-Racial Discussions. And I took up every rationale that white people use for why they didn't speak up and then I just speak back to that from an anti-racist frame and the point is anytime we default right well I never speak up in groups I'm just an introvert um, we're not actually thinking in each moment we're not paying attention like what is needed now is this the moment I need to hold back is this the moment I need to come forward and, and show myself and take a risk and we just won't get that call right by everybody. We can't. But that's the call we need to be struggling with rather than I'm just going to do this or I'm just going to do that. Yes. In the amends process, there is a there is a piece of wisdom that says you make the amend unless it will do more harm to them or others. Yes. And you'd make that in consultation with someone else. Yes. And then another really important step in the amends process, which you, you reference in your talking about making a, a racial amends or racist amends is that you ask have i have i got it all yeah have, have i have have i have i gotten to the bottom of what i think i did here and then you just hold what comes yep <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know and you just and i guess if you have to freak out and go away again and come back um that's right but, but hopefully you, you hold it and you acknowledge it and you uh, apologize again and you know you just keep going until you get to a place where the other person feels heard well actually in the way that it's framed for for my my understanding of 12 step is the apology isn't even really the point you say what can i do to make it better mm -hmm. what can i do to make it right and in some ways the more trust you have the more you're going to hear about it and and you can get confused and think 
gosh, it's worse now. No, people finally feel like they can tell you what they've been holding and, and putting up with. If I knew a man that could hold uh, a challenge to sexism, he'd be hearing about sexism more often, right? Because I think I could talk to him about it. And uh, the things I mostly just kind of, you know, put up with, I, I wouldn't as much with him. And so it's, it's actually a sign of trust. I'm not going to talk to a man about sexism that I don't think can hear it, right? That's just going to invalidate me. It's an incredible moment of, cr of trust across a deep history of harm. And I wish we could receive it that way, those of us who are white, no matter how it's delivered, instead of you know being so put out um, that we got that feedback, right? And I also know that on that piece of how it's delivered, if I have to give a man, or I wanna give a man feedback about sexism, I'm only gonna be able to do it when I'm upset enough to overcome my conflict avoidance, right? And so if if I'm upset enough to just ugh, just go and tell him, and then he says, well, it's your tone, or you need to calm down, like that that's gonna be awful. Because if I wait till I'm calm, I can tell you that I will talk myself out of giving that person feedback. I mean, anybody who's conflict avoidance probably can relate to what I'm saying, right? And so, you know, that emotion and that upset, maybe that's what it took for them to be brave enough to risk telling you. Like, get to the nugget of the, of the feedback. Let go of the delivery. It's so hard across lines of power uh, when it generally doesn't go well uh, to take that risk. You know, see it as precious. It's a precious moment. They're throwing their pearls at your feet. Do not stomp on them. I like that as an ending piece of advice. <laughs> yeah, so, you had to come up with a, I know, I kept thinking, what would be a good ending? <laughs> I think you came up with one. And that's it for the show. Thank you for making it here to the very end. You know the drill. Please rate and review if you haven't already. Rate and review if you have already. Have you rated and reviewed everywhere that you can? That's okay if you haven't, actually. More than anything else, what I want you to do is get in touch with us if you have feedback which would be uh, with friendslikepod at gmail.com. Uh, if you have a question for the show, you might consider uh, including an audio version of the question as well as a written version. And also, well, this is really what I want more than anything else. I want you to take care of yourselves. And we will be back next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 